Both Kickstarter and Indiegogo are part of what is commonly referred to as crowdfunding sites, and my personal relationship to Kickstarter is not one that I enjoy repeating. I met Perry Chen in 2007 when I was introduced to him by Sonny Bates, a longtime friend and Kickstarter's first investor. While Chen's initial idea was getting fans of bands to fund the band's music, he quickly came up with this idea that people would pay for a product in advance simply because they wanted to see that product created. He offered me the chance to invest and I turned him down. Why would people devote their time offering to buy products that didn't exist? I've done a fairly good job in my career in sizing up entrepreneurs and the opportunities in front of them. But here's a story of a company that I badly misjudged and it's because I didn't appreciate the dynamic behind the vision and how vital it would become to the future disruption of so many industries. From an entrepreneur's perspective, it should be obvious why a platform where you can visually or verbally describe a future product would be appealing. Why waste time on building something that people don't want when you can ask people ahead of time whether they would buy your product? For those of you who haven't used Kickstarter or aren't familiar with it, that's exactly how it works. You can browse products that people want to build. And if you like what you see, you can commit to buy the product if and when it's ever built. What surprised me was that in a world where you might think every conceivable product is available on Amazon, there are still lots of products people are willing to pay for that are yet to be conceived. As it turns out, there is a huge audience that is excited about browsing for products that don't exist. Perhaps because they're excited to peer into the entrepreneur's mind, or because they're excited about the possibilities, thereby encouraging a new class of entrepreneurs to dream and rely on their prospective customers for financing. You're listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores current industries that are ripe for massive disruption, as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to explore. This is the second episode in a series about the future of the smart home, and my prediction that in the near future, the smart home will change the way you live. In the last episode, I explored the history of the smart home and where we're at today. In this episode, I'll investigate how startups have been making waves with innovative hardware devices and evolving the role of crowdfunding, specifically as it pertains to the development of the smart home. When innovation comes in a form so dramatic that it can disrupt an entire industry, it almost always comes from startups. I remember graduating from college and moving to New York and hearing about how Barnes & Noble was destroying the city by opening up giant bookstores that were putting the tiniest booksellers out of business. These bookstores were part of the fabric of every neighborhood, and there was big, bad Barnes & Noble threatening with what seemed like monopolistic power to make it impossible for anybody else to ever compete in selling books. Except they didn't fully recognize the threat of another tiny online bookseller called Amazon that today threatens to put Barnes & Noble out of business. Not so many years ago, the largest taxi fleets in just New York City were valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Yet they were more than content to allow their legally monopolistic model, enshrined with million-dollar-plus medallions, to stifle their own innovation. They failed to better serve the areas they couldn't cover, all the while pressuring New York City's Taxi and Limousine Commission to raise taxi rates rather than lower them. The same monopolistic dynamic existed in cities across the world, of course, it would take a company with a founder who had no background in taxis or automobiles to not just disrupt the taxi space, but to forever break it. Uber, and to a lesser extent Lyft and Via, have quite literally rewritten the rules of this industry. 
For years, automobile companies have known how increasing the number of automobiles on the road would contribute to global warming. More importantly, from their perspective, they've understood that a large part of the public would embrace an electric vehicle if it performed as well as a gasoline-powered vehicle and had a range in excess of 200 miles. While the largest companies innovated with hybrid cars, why couldn't these billion-dollar titans mass-produce an affordable electric vehicle? An even more interesting question is why is it now that Tesla is on the verge of rolling out their affordable electric vehicle, the Tesla 3, with a starting price of $35,000, that every major auto manufacturer claims they are also on the verge of releasing their own mass market electric vehicles. Volvo has gone so far as to say that in the future, they will only produce electric vehicles and completely phase out cars with conventional engines. So how are these startups that compete with industry titans typically funded? In the case of Amazon, Uber, and Tesla, they followed the same path as so many of their predecessors. They relied on venture financing. In all of these cases, the venture capital came from the bluest of blue-chip Silicon Valley venture firms. Some of the most well-known smart home startups have begun to follow a similar path. Nest, the smart thermostat we'll talk about extensively in the next episode, started with two engineers who had considerable experience in building mass market products. Together, they had worked at Apple on the iPod, iPhone, and the iPad. Their Series A round of financing included capital from two of the best-known venture firms in Silicon Valley, Kleiner Perkins and Shasta Ventures. In 2009, Dropcam was formed by two former startup engineers from Google this time, Greg Duffy and Amir Varani. Dropcam reimagined the way security cameras should operate inside of a home and constructed a hardware device that seamlessly connected to your Wi-Fi network, enabling you to stream video from your home directly over the web. The company was also backed by a top venture firm in Silicon Valley, Excel Partners. Both Nest and Dropcam eventually sold to Google. These companies aren't outliers in their financing strategies, but in the smart home vertical, as in others, a new path has emerged for funding this type of company. It's worth noting that hardware companies are often more expensive to build than their software company counterparts, making them also more difficult to finance. And here's where Kickstarter and Indiegogo enter the picture. They have both played a central role in disrupting the smart home space, particularly because of how they've helped a number of startups overcome the challenges associated with funding so many esoteric ideas that require the development of both hardware and software components. At about the same time Nest sold to Google, another company called Canary launched a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo for a security device that would go inside your home. It would include a camera, microphone, night vision, motion detection, a siren, a thermostat, and the ability to measure air quality and humidity. It would be connected to your Wi-Fi network and alert you not just of intruders, but of a fire or anything else out of the ordinary in your home. The initial crowdfunding campaign set a goal of $100,000. When the campaign closed, more than $1.9 million was raised from 7,460 people. Canary was launched. When I was doing the research for this podcast series, I went to Kickstarter's website and typed the phrase smart home into their search bar. The result yielded 202 campaigns for new products. In a later episode in this series, I'll comment on who I think will be the winners and losers in the smart home space. For now, let's consider that one of the most vital functions of the smart home will be the operating system, or glue, that ties together all of its devices and apps. While Google, Apple, and Amazon may come to dominate this space, 
the first two serious companies to build this kind of smart home operating system, both had their origins on crowdfunding platforms. SmartThings launched in 2012, positioning themselves as a company that adds intelligence to everyday things in your world. They offered a hub and an app. You installed the hub in your home, and then you'd connect your smart lights, locks, sprinklers, and the like, allowing you to monitor and control your smart home right from your phone. The goal of the campaign was to raise $250,000. When it closed, the campaign had raised over $1.2 million. In 2014, when Samsung recognized the need to own and operate a smart home controller, they paid an estimated $200 million to acquire SmartThings. One of the other major smart home operating systems today, or at least what I'm calling an operating system, is called Wink. They were a spin-off from a crowdsourcing platform called Quirky that launched in 2009. Quirky allowed users to submit inventions that would be reviewed by Quirky. If approved, Quirky would research and develop the product and then sell it from their website. If you submitted or contributed to an invention that was then turned into a product and sold, you would earn a cut of the revenue. According to a New York Times article from 2014, one in four inventions submitted to Quirky were for smart home products, which is partially what spurred the company's founder, Ben Kaufman, to launch Wink. To increase the acceleration of smart home product adoption, Wink promised to be an open operating system to facilitate interactions between apps and products from unrelated vendors all in the smart home ecosystem. Where Wink succeeded, Quirky ultimately went under. In 2016, Professor Ethan Mollick at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School published his research on the Kickstarter effect. He found that as of 2016, over 2.5 billion had been raised on the platform and roughly 90% of those successful products went on to ship. Kickstarter, becoming increasingly aware of its impact on hardware product success, launched a program earlier this year called Hardware Studio. The program is designed to educate and connect creators, providing accepted teams everything from help developing production plans to office hours with engineers. To get a sense of the impact of crowdfunding sites on the smart home space, I spoke with three startups that had success on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. One of the companies I spoke with was Minute, a security company that produces the Point security system. What was so interesting about this company is that they conceived of a security system without cameras, which initially struck me as strange, but creative. Their system doesn't preclude me from getting cameras independent of them. They imagined use cases where people wouldn't want to stream video from the interior of their homes for privacy reasons, but would still want the same security benefits offered by cameras. In 2014, Point raised $238,000 with 2,005 backers on Kickstarter and started shipping their product in 2015. Nils Madison is the CEO. The Kickstarter campaign was where we got started. Point back then was more of a product uh, aimed at Airbnb, um, where the this need to balance privacy and peace of mind is perhaps more pronounced than in the general market. Um, but when we did that back in, I think we started shipping at end of 2015, uh, and we started talking to our users, we realized that most of them were not Airbnb hosts, and they were part of a broader market where people uh, wanted the same peace of mind as from camera systems, but 
uh, didn't see any alternatives and they were using point as such an alternative. And that's when we started changing the, um, the product a little bit. I wanted to know what set point apart from other home monitoring devices. The product that we have on the market now is fairly basic uh, in that we monitor temperature, humidity, we take uh, infrasound, um, some higher frequency sound, but not very high frequency, together with some data on particle, ambient light, air pressure. We are in the process of um, developing a new generation that has um, a much richer data set that includes a richer ultrasonic uh, component. Um, as well as motion data. <clears throat> and what we do is really we take all of these data streams, uh, we do what's called feature extraction on the device itself. So we uh, don't actually ever store any of the raw data. We run it through a uh, processor that uh, identifies um, interesting features in the sound or sensor data. And then we use the output from these feature extractors in um, uh, different machine learning uh, algorithms to correlate the data to uh, to known events, basically. These events we are focused on right now is like the presence of people, how many people are in the room, how many people are talking, is a door opening or closing, um, is there a fire, is there some other um, hazard. Um, the ones that we have on the market is uh, uh, related to, uh, to alarms, people coming and going. Um, but the idea is basically to cover all of the uh, things that you would have uh, separate sensors for today uh, and uh, replace those with this um, one solution that is taking a lot of sensor data, but that can then identify uh, individual, say, say a window breaking or uh, two people being in a room versus three, which are things that you can, you can then use uh, to build different applications. And the application that we're focused on is, is some security, but the underlying technology is pretty applicable in many instances, I would think. One of the more interesting applications that Nils talked about was using data from Point to share with insurance companies. The idea was that if you were abstracting data from the home that would reduce the likelihood of a break-in or fire or some other calamity, that the insurance companies might be willing to lower their customers' insurance rates. Is there some other use of the data that's not obviously apparent to me, but that you're thinking about that could be implemented in the future? Yes. So I think there are two that we're already doing. Um, so one is what we call uh, we call insights. So we're basically trying to identify uh, uh, conditions in your home where we think there can be an improvement that can lead to, to better health. So this is something we're experimenting with. And I think that's a, that's a very concrete and, and good use case. We're seeing some of this telemetry um, as being a potential building block for the future of uh, how insurance could work. Um, so it's not a coincidence that we're working so much with insurance companies because um, home insurance today is very, um, is very opaque. You basically pay for a piece of paper and then when you have a problem, you call. Um, and there is, in some cases, very little incentive for you to reduce the amount of damages for example. Um, so we think there is a, a kind of combined uh, play in community monitoring, security and insurance where we can better align the uh, incentives of a customer with that of the insurance company and with, and with that of the security company. That's, of course, like a decade long play, but I think uh, that's very interesting. 
Nils gave me one use case where Point could predict danger in the home. Are there other data points that you can abstract that in the future you'll be able to say, you need to change some of the characteristics of your living situation or you are a candidate for a high risk or fire situation? Or is that too, is that absurd? No, not at all. Like uh, the information won't be at that high definition in a while. Um, but we are doing it, for example, in uh, mold prevention. So mold grows under very specific temperature and humidity circumstances. And you can also see, you can sometimes see its presence in uh, on other sensors. But you can identify these conditions and notify uh, an owner about them and recommend uh, measures. Point has already prevented at least one disaster we had our first real emergency in January of this year. Um, there was a, a person in a multi-home uh, dwelling who uh, left the stove on and left the house. And he started a fire in the kitchen, which was detected by point. Um, this happened to happen on one of these places where we have um, a community response in testing. So point alerted the owners who didn't respond um, and two neighbors. The neighbors, also point customers, um, had never met the person with the emergency nor each other, but two of them responded, saw that there was smoke coming out of the uh, apartment um, and uh, actually I think broke a window or first floor. Uh, were able to uh, save the lives of two dogs, call the emergency services who were there and uh, could put the fire out. So this is an instance where we would then do a much earlier detection, a much earlier response that even emergency services uh, could normally do. These are you know, big buildings with, uh, with many families sharing. Uh, so the amount, of, the amount of money you save from just preventing one instance like that is, uh, is, is is fantastic, right? So that, that alone will, uh, will be able to uh, lower the uh, premiums uh, and the risk of families. Another company that had success raising money on Kickstarter was Tovala, a company manufacturing a smart oven, as well as providing meals designed to be cooked by the oven. Here's an idea that in a million years I never would have thought of. For those of you who aren't familiar with Blue Apron or Plated, these are companies that launched a few years back with the idea of delivering fresh ingredients to the home in the exact proportions of a specific recipe for you to cook. The meal kit business model was predicated on the idea that people like to cook, but it's expensive and time-consuming to purchase all of the ingredients every time you want to make an elaborate meal. Blue Apron went public early this year with a $2.5 billion market cap but immediately plunged in value after Amazon announced that they would compete directly with them. Tovala's proposition was that even the simplified Blue Apron implementation for cooking was too complicated. The purest implementation of home cooking with recipes would utilize a special oven connected to the network. Think smart home with smart food. On Kickstarter earlier this year, 1,067 backers pledged $255,603 to take the Tovala oven from concept to reality. The first shipments went out in April. I spoke with co-founder and CEO, David Raby. The best way to think about us is we are a meal delivery service uh, with an oven that's designed to cook those meals perfectly. Um, the idea is that there's all these different food services out there from uh, Grubhub to Blue Apron to even 
picking up, you know, food at Whole Foods, uh, and all of them have some sort of sacrifice that's required. It could be the taste of the food is not that great. It could be that the meal is not that healthy. It could be that with Blue Apron, for example, it takes you 45 minutes to make the meal. Uh, but at the end of the day, you have to give something up with each of those services. And the goal with Tilvala is that you get a delicious, healthy meal at the touch of a button. So to be clear, whereas with Blue Apron, they give you ingredients, yours, the ingredients are already assembled in a aluminum or some type of, of container. So there's no preparation. Is that where the, the time is saved? Yeah, so this time is saved in two parts. One is the prep. We do a lot of prep on the front end at our production facility. Really, all that's left to the consumer is to put sauce on top of your fish or your chicken breast or something like that. Uh, and then the oven does all of the cooking. So the oven is capable of steaming, baking, and broiling at a wide you know, disparity in temperatures. And every meal will take advantage of all of those different functions, changing temperatures, changing types of heating, in essence, replacing multiple appliances in the home, uh, but taking out the pain of cooking and, and having to clean all those pots and pans. I asked him why I would need a smart oven if I already had an oven. We tend to compare it more to a toaster oven than a traditional oven, and toaster ovens are incredibly powerful and useful. Most people you talk to who have a toaster oven love it because it's very easy to make roasted vegetables or toast bread or, or melt cheese on bread, a lot of applications for a toaster oven, um, and it's a lot more conducive to people that live alone or with a spouse or with very young children, and you're not, you don't want to heat up a giant oven that takes a lot of time and make a lot of food. Most steam ovens are thousands of dollars, and they come built into really nice homes, or they're used in commercial settings. So it's not something that's really been brought to the home successfully yet, even though they're incredibly powerful, and, and you know when you try the food. That's that's why for us, it's all about trying our meals uh, because chicken comes out so much juicier in a steam oven than it does in a normal oven or a toaster oven. The Tovala oven itself costs $329 and each meal is $12, arriving in three packs. One of the questions I asked David was why the oven had to be connected to the internet. He painted a picture of a community of Tovala users who would share recipes that could be sent to their smart ovens in order to cook meals outside of Tavala's meal plan offerings. We're rolling out a community feature probably in the next month for people to share their own recipes with each other. And over time, that will get integrated within the mobile app that we've built so that you could push a button and it would cook whatever X person's recipe is that they developed. So we're very open to having people create recipes for the platform and sharing that with other folks, even if it's not the meals that we are creating. The oven is connected. We create the QR codes for our meals. If this was a meal that you know your friend made that you wanted to replicate, uh, they would share the prep instructions. So you would buy the ingredients, prep the cookies, and then you know eventually within the app there would be a button that says cook, and you would just hit that button, and your friend would have already hopefully figured out the perfect way to cook, whether it's cookies or a turkey, using the right temperatures and different settings and such. What's so interesting about these crowdfunded companies is that they explore ideas that either haven't occurred to the largest players in a given space or for whatever reason haven't been pursued yet. Another company that experienced initial crowdfunding success and offers a product I would definitely use if I were building a new home is Keen Home, a company that creates smart vents. They raised $40,234 on Indiegogo in 2013 and went on to become part of Techstars Connected Devices Accelerator where they raised a 1.5 2 million seed round. 
In 2016, they received a $750,000 investment on Shark Tank from Robert Herkovic. I spoke with Naeem Hussein, co-founder and CEO, about his vision for the smart home. Our vision is to create innovative hardware software um, solutions for home infrastructure, right? It just so happens that HVAC heating, you know, heating and cooling is our, was our entry point just because there's not very much innovation happening there beyond the smart thermostat, which we looked at as um, just part of the solution, right? We, we thought a critical piece was missing, sort of room by room temperature control. So if the smart thermostat is a single switch, right, it's still a single switch to control all the lights in your home. We provide that granularity of control, which leads to a lot of really interesting value propositions beyond just comfort and control, but also energy efficiency. We're looking, think of the home as, as a body, right? We're looking at those key systems that keep a body running, keep a home running. So that's HVAC, that's plumbing, electrical, disaster prevention. Now, many of those systems are not necessarily um, sort of in front of somebody to, to really look at all the time. They're integral to making sure you're safe, secure, you know, efficiently living in your home. And if any of those systems malfunction, you're not looking at a couple hundred dollars. You're oftentimes looking at thousands of dollars of, of remediation. So we, we chose home infrastructure very purposely because there's very little innovation in those spaces. If you kind of take a step back and look at the smart home as an industry, you see a lot of money, a lot of design, a lot of in, uh, innovation flowing into, you know, security, flowing into you know, thermostats is a great example, light bulbs, entertainment, um, but very, very little innovation and, and, and investment is going into some of these infrastructure pieces, uh, which means to us that they're greenfield for from a competition perspective. But most importantly, uh, again, they're very critical to, you know, homeowner being able to have that peace of mind when they go home. I asked Naeem why he didn't go after the commercial space instead of starting with the residential space. It's all, it's all about the sales cycle, and, and you might have a perfect market opportunity, but they, they'll say, okay, great. So you want to put it into a hotel, you want to put it into a, you know, an office building. You know, these folks are, are historically very risk-averse, right? They like to see heritage. They like to see a brand that they are familiar with or that they, they have a feeling they can trust. Uh, and then they like to pilot. And when I say pilot, it's not oh, we'll throw it in here for a few months and then, you know, we'll place a million unit order. It's we'll throw it in here for a year, year and a half. We'll test it out. And then, you know what, if it's a hit, we'll we'll expand it to, to 10 units, to 10 different sites. And then we'll expand it, you know, six months after that to 100 sites. Right. So before you know it, you've lost years and millions of dollars. Right. And it's a chicken or the egg situation with investors who oftentimes want to see orders, want to see revenue, want to see progress. Uh, or, or else they won't, they won't invest in your company. It's, it seems like that's the bigger driver, right? They, there's, there's no Kickstarter campaign for a corporate offering. There's or an enterprise offering, and there's no. And I appreciate the sales cycle. I also appreciate retrofitting an existing floor is hard, but on new construction, I would think people would immediately gravitate to this and think. Um, for a new construction opportunity, this is a home run. And there wouldn't be, people wouldn't do a limited test in the confines of a building. It might be you start with a small building, but you made the decision that that was not the best way to go? Yeah, we made a decision that, you know, even in new construction, right, there's all sorts of, you know, building management software that you have to integrate with, which oftentimes is quite archaic. You'd be surprised. You would think that, 
you know, when it comes to new construction, everything is new, including, you know, hardware and software, right? But once again, building construction folks are very risk averse. And what that means is they're using technology that has been, has been proven to work for not only, not necessarily years, but decades, right? Um, so the, the, the infrastructure that we would be sort of integrating with and working alongside uh, was such that, you know, we felt it was too big of a risk um, for not enough of a, you know, one to two year payoff. Whereas when you go into the residential space, yes, it's difficult from a sort of an awareness. It's expensive from getting awareness and, and sort of uh, notoriety, but you can make immediate sales. You can get immediate feedback. And most importantly, you can continue to iterate towards product market fit very rapidly. And that was something that we've been fortunate enough to get the awareness through avenues like Shark Tank, um, get the feedback from tens of thousands of customers, and we've been fortunate enough to remain capitalized that we can, and we've continued to be able to put that feedback back into the product, make the product better. And listen, that enterprise opportunity is still there. If anything, it's even stronger now, right? Because you're not pushing, it's pulling. If entrepreneurs think all they have to do is head to Kickstarter or Indiegogo with a crowdfunding campaign for a hardware offering, they should know that the competition is becoming fierce for the consumer's attention. Not only that, but investors are less impressed by numbers today that a few years ago would have been judged as sufficient traction for further investment. Naeem from Keen Home elaborated on his experience crowdfunding. I think the, the, the Kickstarter or the call it the crowdfunding bar over the last three, four years has risen immensely, maybe even exponentially. Meaning, in 2013, 2014, a 50K, 100K, 150K crowdfunding effort was largely seen as a success by, by both consumers and by, by sort of the venture capital community. Now, it's almost a dud, right? Which is funny to say, but it's true. If you're, you have a hardware component that you would like to validate, right, using these platforms, you know, you kind of almost have to look at 500K up or maybe even a million up or bust. That's crazy, right? Because it's it's an arbitrary number to establish validation. I would think you're right. I, I would think $50,000 would reflect validation. You hit that now and it's almost like you kind of have to sweep it under the rug and explain it. You're, you're, you're oftentimes, unless you can hit a, a marquee figure, you're spending more time explaining why it's so low to the people that have all the money where it becomes a distraction. So I, I oftentimes caution entrepreneurs who are looking at this space or, or looking at sort of a hardware component, whether it's smart home or, or, or otherwise, to sort of really understand the dynamics at play when it comes to crowdfunding these days, um, just like anything, right? I mean, think of how prevalent virality is in our society just in the last two to three years, whether it's Instagram views or, or, or likes or what have you, um, that sort of thinking has seeped into the consciousness of not only consumers, but also investors, whether they want to admit it or not. Um, a lot of times rational thinking goes out the door when you're coming up against sort of uh, what, what your viral quotient is. Can you create a viral loop? As an entrepreneur, it's a gift and a curse, right? Because if you can kind of find a, a recipe, whether it's the way you're phrasing something, whether the, whether the way you can produce a video, if you can hit on that, then you at least know, you know you're onto something. Um, but oftentimes what's the sort of unfortunate byproduct of, of this is 
a lot of good ideas don't really make it because people aren't paying attention. To kind of just put a put a put a bow on it, I do think crowdfunding is useful, and I think you know companies need to consider it. They just need to devote a lot more resources and attention to those campaigns than than they have to, and that may mean having a twenty-five thousand dollar or fifty thousand dollar budget to acquire PR and to make a really amazing sort of teaser video that looks super professional um, and then also make have a lot more progress and a lot more traction than you might might have needed so maybe that's you already have working prototypes that you can sort of demonstrate because not only is the bar higher from a dollars raise perspective it's also higher from a are you going to rip me off are you ever going to get to market think of all of the high profile delays from both small medium and large companies for fulfilling um, promises made on crowdfunding websites. So consumers are, are a lot more wary. Today, the ultimate validation for Kickstarter is that large companies have joined startups on crowdfunding platforms in trying to validate the market for a new product before actually building the product. For all those big companies wondering how to function like a nimble startup, this is it. Nightingale operates like a startup within Cambridge Sound Management, a global leader in sound management technologies that mask noise. Christopher Khaleesi, CEO of Cambridge Sound Management and founder of Nightingale, told me how his product would play a critical role in the future of smart homes providing his customers a better night's sleep. Nightingale is specifically designed to mask noises and sounds, conversations, so that you can sleep. Ironically, Nightingale does have some nature sounds as well. And uh, between you, me, and everybody listening, um, I, I actually was opposed to putting those nature sounds in because I wanted Nightingale to strictly be about sleep. Um, but there were some, you know, in, in the customer work that we did before we designed the product, there were some customers who said, you know what, I still want to be able to switch to um, hearing a waterfall or hearing loons. And so Nightingale has some of those, but Nightingale has 15 sound blankets. These are specifically designed, these are masking curves designed to help you sleep by cocooning you, if you will, and the occupants in a room um, from external sounds. Nightingale received $107,389 from 576 backers on Kickstarter. For a company that was already well-funded and had customers, I wanted to know from Christopher why he pushed forward with a crowdfunding campaign for Nightingale. It really was to just to do two things. One is to gain awareness, and then we used it as one more level of beta testing. So those customers were able to get product and get us feedback very quickly on the product. So it wasn't about, uh, trust me, <laughs> the, the little bit that we raised on Kickstarter was immaterial to what I spent uh, developing Nightingale. So it had nothing to do with trying to raise funds. It was more about awareness, um, customer input, and uh, one more round of, uh, of real, live, in the field feedback. Because as you know, IoT <laughs> um, is, is different. I use the analogy that you can buy a toaster in a store because your house has electricity. You can go home and you can plug it in anywhere and it works. 
you buy an IoT device that's Wi-Fi and you bring it home because you have Wi-Fi, it doesn't mean it's going to work everywhere in your house or work the same way and with the same consistency. So it was important, you know, with all the different routers and all the extenders and all the things people have in their homes to make sure that we were interacting properly with other smart devices and working in those environments. So Kickstarter helped us there a great deal. For the entrepreneurs I know, a crowdfunding campaign seems like a legitimate shortcut on the path to building a business. I like to tell people that the key to being a successful entrepreneur is the ability to quickly launch a product. And when the product bombs, the strong entrepreneur is able to recognize the 99% that needs to change and the 1% she got right. Next step, relaunch. When the next version also bombs, this time she gets rid of the 98% that needs to be changed and keeps the 2% that worked. You iterate. Great entrepreneurs iterate their way to success. These crowdsourcing platforms allow the entrepreneur to test the market before building a product. Think of it like this. In a typical context, you might spend five iterations simply building a product your audience likes. And that's before you begin to iterate to a truly great product. In the Kickstarter context, if your campaign fails, you know you need to iterate before you commence building. A successful crowdfunding campaign doesn't guarantee success, but it does mean that you got something right immediately out of the gate, and it's likely more than the 1% right I was referring to a minute ago. I think crowdfunding sites will continue to play a major role in the innovations we see in the smart home space. Tune into the next episode in this series on the future of the smart home, where I'll examine how an industry titan is able to maintain its lead in the smart thermostat space and what this means for other smart home players. If you'd like to learn more about the people featured in this podcast, go to predictingourfuture.com and don't forget to subscribe. This is Predicting Our Future.